money holds the power, but the rising cries against the deification of wealth indicates that we all know there is something wrong with this passion. We need leaders who place principles before bank accounts. Dave Wurtzen, our Truth Encounter study leader, turns to this issue of the need for leaders not to be lovers of money. Eight out of every ten computers in America could not even boot up. And if you're computer illiterate, that would mean that the machine can't even come online and start working unless this fellow's equipment is operating in your machine. He's now worth $10 billion. He's building a house on Washington Island, which is a, is a Seattle uh, suburban area, a beautiful Seattle island that's out there. And uh, he's building uh, a house that is going to cost $150 million, kind of in some of your legs, right? Uh, it's going to cost $150 million. It has a 25-foot trampoline in it for him to exercise on. Uh, he has a 20-car garage in the basement of this house. Um, he is now attacking not only, he's not only taken over the computer world, but he's now attacking the world of entertainment. His big dream is now to take over the internet and to be able to get your telephones and your banking and the internet and communication and just uh, the entertainment industry, anything you can imagine. He wants to bring it under his web. And Time Magazine labeled um, Bill Gates the master of the universe. And a lot of people have said this is the ultimate revenge of the nerd because here was a guy that was a computer hacker and he, he has that nerd look, you know, with the glasses, little bitty guy. And now, you know, he controls America. Uh, in fact, the government now is trying to put some attacks against Microsoft because they're saying that it might have a monopoly. I couldn't help but think, you know, what an incredible thing to, to call a man. On Time Magazine, Bill Gates was called the master of the universe. Now, what does that mean that he's a master of the universe? I think it's very appropriate that Time called Bill Gates a master of the universe because for many of us as Americans, he is the master of the universe because we think that the universe revolves around having $10 billion, controlling business, having that kind of power and prestige. Some of us dream about making it maybe in the computer industry. There's others that believe you can make it maybe by just going up to a convenience store and getting a lottery ticket and you're going to suddenly become a $10 million winner. And I want all of you to stop and think about this week and what you've been thinking about. Because, you know, I often speak to you, for example, if I were to speak to you about violence and the, the threat of gang warfare in the United States, you all realize violence, bloody, murderous violence is evil, isn't it? Sure. You know, none of us want to end up, you know, the, a piece of meat that a, that a murderous criminal snuffs out our life. So when we read the commandments, thou shalt not murder, we all grab, you know, we groove on that. We know that's true. If I were to say, hey, you know, adultery is really a bad thing. If a husband or wife goes out and, and, and steals, you know, on their, on their partner and acts unfaithfully and commits adultery, you all will say, amen, that's right, boy. I know that sexual immorality is wrong. But, you know, the last commandment is, thou shalt not covet. And it speaks probably about the most insidious idol the most insidious goddess that's trying to, to grab the allegiance of our heart and our minds and our lives and our life power. 
And Bill Gates kind of epitomizes, I don't know where Bill stands in his own relationship with God, but the, the tenor of the magazine article is that here's a man that is the master of his universe. And here's a man that's done it by being able to war against other companies and to be able to attack other companies and being able to seize the initiative. And, and the whole idea is, you know, here's a man that's mastering the universe because he's made $10 billion. And that's, that's a goddess. That's something that we worship. In fact, all of us, at one time or another, you don't have to be a 10 billionaire, you know, kind of a person, to have that tremendous pull in your life. If I were to ask you, how many of you have been motivated to give your life force for money this week, almost all of us would have to say that we've been tangled up with that. It might have been when you were, you were um, working over your checkbook. You see, it can be that as you're working over that checkbook and you're trying to pay those bills that you become incredibly worried and you start to, start to feel like, man, I just don't know how I'm going to make it through another month. I just don't see how I can make ends meet. Man, I guess I'm just going to have to work harder and work harder and work harder. And man, I guess we're going to have to get you know, maybe two or three different jobs. And that tremendous stress starts to come over you because you feel like, man, I'm not sure that I can, I can continue to sustain myself. And that is idolatry. You see, we're allowing the drive of our life to be poured into, to be poured into worry and stress over paying those bills. It can also come over when you, when you, when you go in, you look at like a brand new truck, for example, or, or a brand new home, or you go through the newspaper this afternoon and you see all those beautiful houses that are, that are in the real estate market. And you begin to have this tremendous drive, man, I've got to have one of those houses. Now, there's nothing wrong with one of those houses, but that tremendous power that comes over us that starts to pull us saying, man, that's going to really make life meaningful. If, if I can only get that pool, if I can only get that house, if if I can only travel. And you know what? A billion dollars can give you the house, the pool, and the 20-car garage, and it can give you travel, it can give you power, it can give you prestige. But you know what? It's a lie if you believe that you're the master of the universe if you achieve material prosperity. It's almost a, a trite thing to say because we all know it, but I know that in my own life I can easily forget it. And that's why it's so important for us to realize that Bill Gates is not the master of his universe. Let's suppose this week there's a, twi a slight twitch in his heartbeat and his heart doesn't function right. And he ends up in an intensive care ward. Where is his $10 billion going to be? There. Ecclesiastes says who's going to get his $10 billion? Let's suppose, that, you know, and I don't wish this on anyone, but let's suppose there's a blood clot that cuts loose and he has a stroke. Where is he going to be there? You see, one of the things that the Lord in over 20 years of pastoral ministry has really driven home to me in just a very powerful reality is there was a day that when I went into a, an office like of a Bill Gates, not that I've ever been in Bill Gates' office, but I have, for example, been at the, the top of the, the building in New York City and right with the head of, of RCA and maybe the NBC and all that kind of a thing. And you go into those offices and you walk into one of those big tower offices in New York. I remember as a little kid, I used to feel like, man, these guys are on top of the world. These ladies are on top of the world. You know, they control things and they make things happen. And I remember I'd be a little bit intimidated by that. 
Or I would go to a fancy party. I remember when Mary and I first came to Dallas, we went to the home of, of some big business person in Dallas that went to the Sunday school classes that, that we were going to at the time. And, and, I mean, you could put our whole house in one of their bathrooms. Mary and I spent the whole evening just going from one bathroom to another. They had about ten of them. You know, just looking at these massive things. I, I, I was intrigued. I mean, I'd never been in houses where they had these gigantic, elaborately decorated bathrooms. We just couldn't get over it. I mean, you could spend the whole night just bopping through the house doing that. It was an incredible house. And I remember feeling, you know, I, you, you get in your car and start driving back to, you know, to your little apartment, going to seminary, and man, there was intimidation in that. Man, think of the power, think of the prestige. So when I first started in the ministry, and sometimes you would go into a powerful person's house or into their office or wherever it might be, you had a tendency to be intimidated. No longer do I feel that way. Because now I know the reality that all of us are just flesh and blood, Bill Gates included. You see, he's not the master of the universe because because just like that, the life power that is given to us as a gracious gift. Every one of you that are listening to my voice right now, you are totally and completely dependent upon the Lord God. And that's why he needs to be the devotion of your heart. You don't need to look at Bill Gates and covet what he has. You don't need to go and and say, man, if only I could win the lottery, then I'd really be somebody. Then I would be important. That drive, and, and when that goddess begins to take over your life, it will snuff out the things that are really, really important. What I want to talk to you about today is another one of our qualities of leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, right after he says they must not be violent, but gentle. They must not be quarrelsome. Remember we talked about the pugnacious bully. We talked about the argumentative debater. Remember we talked about the qualities of leadership. They must not be someone who is a fighter, but someone instead who's gentle and who is considerate and is willing to let the Lord Jesus be the head of the body. At the end of that, you notice it says right after not quarrelsome, Paul writes these words, the spiritual leader. The mature elder in the body of Christ, the mature overseer in the body of Christ must not be a lover of money. He must not be in love with money. Now notice he doesn't say that he must not have money because later on in 1 Timothy 6, we're going to find out this morning that he talks about believers in a family of believers, even in the first century, who had money. The Bible doesn't say that money in itself is the evil thing. But it does warn us about the love of money. In fact, Paul is so concerned about this when he talks about deacons. Look down just a little bit. Look down at verse 8. He talks to deacons. Deacons likewise are to be men worthy of respect. They must be sincere. In other words, having integrity in their life, not mixed in their emotions. And, and, and in their motivations, it says not indulging in much wine. Then he adds this, not pursuing dishonest gain. And the idea there is, is not hungry for achieving material prosperity through base or illegitimate means. In other words, these are people that do not have money as their ultimate God so that they lose their ethics. They lose their ability to know what is right and what is wrong. You see, sometimes you might be able to make a big buck, but you would hurt a friend, or you would destroy a promise, or you would break your word. 
And the scripture is saying that a spiritual leader must not be someone who earns money and gets gain dishonestly or basely. Turn over to Titus chapter 1. And Paul talks to uh, Titus about appointing elders in Crete. And again, he mentions that the individual, down in verse, um, eight, uh, verse 7, he says that the overseer must not be overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given in drunkenness, not violent. And then we have it again, the same thing he told the deacons, not pursuing dishonest gain. You say, well, that's all the Apostle Paul. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And the great Apostle Peter, one of the inner circle of the Lord Jesus, talked to spiritual leaders as he closed his epistle. 1 Peter chapter 5. Flip over there. In 1 Peter chapter 5, the Apostle Peter is talking to the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the congregation. He says to the elders among you, to the mature Christ-like leaders that are among you, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. Notice that Peter doesn't lord it over the flock, doesn't think he's more important than anyone else, but he's one of the spiritual leaders in the church of the first century. He's also a witness of the sufferings of Christ. An incredible statement. He's saying, I am an eyewitness of what Jesus Christ experienced at Calvary. And notice what he says, be shepherds of God's flock. What a beautiful way to talk about what leadership is. The beautiful imagery of a shepherd that's tenderly taking care of lambs and taking care of the sheep. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care. Serving as overseers, not because you must, not out of a compulsion, not because someone, you know, twists your arm and makes you take on leadership, but instead because you are willing. And one of the things that I'm praying, the Lord is going to create in the heart of many of you to become willing to shoulder the responsibility for taking on the dream of what God wants to do through this local body of believers. I want you to understand, I want you to catch a new excitement for the truth that we have in Christ. And like Peter of old, who knew the the glory and the wonder of what Christ has done, and he never got over what that did for him, he's saying to to the next generation, Because Peter's an older man when he writes this epistle. He's saying, I'm writing to the next generation. I want there to be willing leadership. People not forced into positions, but people that feel constrained by the Holy Spirit that this is something exciting. This is something real. This is something authentic. This is something that's going to be worth pouring my life to. Some of you that are pouring so much energy into material things. The Lord wants you not to to just pour all that creativity into just that area of your life. He wants you to realize that you can use those creative gifts and those planning skills and those organizational skills and those motivational skills to communicate the truth of Jesus. But you have to have a willing spirit to do this. And then he says this. They must be those, they must not be greedy for money. But instead they must be eager to serve. And so here we have in the Word of God, in 1 Timothy 3, in Titus 1, in 1 Peter 5, every one of these epistles stress that the spiritual leader must not be greedy for money. Why not? I'd ask the question, Paul, Peter, why are you so concerned that spiritual leaders not be in love with money? Why did the Lord Jesus tell us in in Matthew chapter 6 that you're going to have to make a choice? It's either going to be the goddess mammon, 
using the love of money in the, in the word mammon stands for that love of money, being controlled by money, having money as your motivation. When you make choices, money becomes the bottom line. It's saying in Matthew chapter 6, it's either going to be that mammon or it's going to be the living God. And what I want to do is I want to sketch out to you some really strong, authentic reasons why money cannot control my life. Why money cannot control your life. Why money can't be the controlling factor. And Paul, and Paul does it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And all I pray that the Lord will help you to understand the reality of what Paul is teaching us. Because the truth of the matter is that you can pour your life force into money. And money is very motivating. It's very exciting. And it's easy to, you know, to get under a massive debt load and, and the struggle that comes from that. Or it's easy to, to be always grasping for the brass ring. And you can pour out all your life energy in this pursuit of silver. The word that says not a lover of money literally means not loving silver. Not being in love with, with, with precious substance, a precious metal which in our culture comes down to us in the way of trust in our government. And, and how can we really trust that? In other words, Paul is saying that, that there's a great temptation to pour the love of your life into silver, into money. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he tells us why he doesn't want us to do that. If you pour your life into money, and if our church family begins to focus on just the bottom line and on money, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have good accounting procedures. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about, about not handling finances wisely. In a family of believers, it's very important to handle those funds wisely. But what Paul is saying is that money can't be the drive of any of our lives. It can't be the bottom line of our worship. And he writes this in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he tells us why that this must not be the driver of our life. Look at verse 2, the end of verse 2, because the end of verse 2 goes in with the, with the following paragraph. These are the things that you are to continually to teach and to urge upon them. He writes this, If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the healthy Healthy instruction. The word sound means that the instruction the Apostle Paul is giving you in Christ Jesus will be healthy for you spiritually. He says, and does not agree with the healthy instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching. Paul doesn't mince any words. He says he is puffed up. He is full of himself. The word that's literally used there means that his head is filled with smoke. And when your head is filled with smoke and your eyes begin to burn, you can't see clearly, and you're under this fog. You're saying this person is so filled with pride that they can't see anything clearly. And that's what starts to happen when someone has the goddess of money as the Lord of their life. He says they are conceited, they're filled with smoke, and they understand nothing. They won't understand spiritual truth. They're not going to respond to what we're trying to communicate from the Word of God today. It says he has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in strife, malicious talk, evil suspicion, and constant fiction, friction between men of corrupt minds. Boy, those are heavy words. Who are robbed of truth and to think that godliness is a means to financial gain. The very first reason why spiritual leaders cannot have money as the goddess of their life, the controlling uh, adoration of their life, is because it will produce all kinds of strife, all kinds of envy, all kinds of doubting of motives. 
You know, in the United States today, of America today, when we mention the evangelical church, the unbelieving world does not think in terms of our compassion for one another. The unbelieving world does not think in terms of, our, of the tender way that we care for our sick. The unbelieving world does not think in terms of, 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 of a compassionate group of people that really want to meet, the, to meet the needs of the inner city. You know what the unbelieving world thinks of right now? They think in terms of market. They think in terms of another power block. In fact, in, in our Christian publishing industry, for example, major big secular companies have invaded those markets. You know why? Because it's very lucrative. It's very lucrative. And as I move upon some of the power brokers of evangelicals, a whole lot of them talk about the bottom line. Will this sell? Is this really important? You, you send in something to a publisher, and the only thing that they ask is, not is it biblical, not only will it, you know, will it minister, is this really what the church needs? The, the issue is, will it sell? Will it make money? And then they'll say something like this, you need to throw a little controversy in. You need to throw a little strife in. You need to throw a little bit of real strong statement that's stated a little bit to the extreme because that's what really sells, and that's true. But that's wrong. It doesn't heal the body of Christ. It doesn't give us that gentleness and that peaceableness that causes us to be able to really listen to what God's word is saying. The longer that I study God's word, I realize that when I'm full of myself and when I'm thinking about the influence that I can have, that I'm walking away from my Savior when I think like that. When I'm thinking in terms of writing anything to be able just to get an audience, then I don't hear what, what God is saying because I'm following a Savior who when the great crowds came to him at Capernaum, he just got on the boat and went to the other side. He was never controlled by the crowd. Anyone that's controlled by the crowd will never tell you the truth. And what Paul was telling and what's really comforting to me is to realize that right away in the first century, the church was faced with those who loved strife, who loved the battle, who loved to stir things up in the body of Christ. And Paul exposed them. He said the issue here is money. They're in love with money. They believe that this religious thing is a way to make a buck. And what I want us to pray is that we'll realize that when there is strife, when there is a beginning to doubt one another's motives, when we begin to distrust one another, one of the first questions we need to ask ourselves, have we shifted and have we begun, instead of worshiping Jesus, have we begun to worship material things and money? The very first reason Paul says that spiritual leaders cannot have the bottom line of money, their bottom line needs to be the Savior, because if it's money, the church will be filled with conflict. And I want all of you as a congregation to pray. You need to pray that our congregation will be free of strife and free of envy and free of jealousy and free of doubting one another's motives. And the way for us to have that is for us to be in love with God and not in love with money. We need to remember that, when, that money love produces jealous strife. The next thing Paul says is this. Look at the next uh, paragraph. He says in verse 6, but you know, actually, godliness with contentment is great gain. You see, Paul isn't against material things, but what he's saying is that there's things that are a whole lot more important, and he's saying that money can never give you contentment, but Jesus can. 
And when you rely upon Jesus, you can pray every single day, give us this day our daily bread. In this Sermon on the Mount, and Paul, I think, is remembering what the Lord taught in this Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus says that you can ask your Father, and your Father in heaven, just like good fathers here on earth, when their son or their daughter asks, they can expect to receive good things. And Jesus used a powerful illustration, almost a, 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 a kind of a, a marvelous humor. He says, listen, if you ask your dad for a fish, does your dad give you a water moccasin? If you ask your dad for a piece of, you know, a piece of bread, does he give you a stone? He says, no. He loves you. You, you know, even un, and he says, if you being wicked, you being filled with evil, still know how to give good things to your children, then how much more do you think your Heavenly Father can provide for you? That's what Paul is saying here when he says that godliness, a relationship with God, really is great gain. And I covet it for every one of you. I covet you to have that sweet rest that my daddy in heaven will supply my needs today. If you're a business person and business can maneuver you so that the whole thing is on the line, that you've worked for year after year after year and, and you're ready to crucial junction and, and you've got to make a crucial choice and, and, and you could lose everything. And boy, that can, that, can, that can just tear your life to smithereens. It can destroy you unless you have contentment. Unless you're able to say, this isn't my life. This isn't what really holds me together. My Father in Heaven holds me together and I'll never lose Him. And my love relationship with Him is secure. That's the person who isn't torn apart. That's the person who doesn't have to jump out of windows because the, the stock market has crashed. That's what Paul is saying. Is godliness with contentment is great gain. And only God can give contentment. But he contrasts it. He says this, For we are brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. Now that's just the truth. That's a great truth to remember. You know what? Bill Gates is going to go into eternity stark, spanking naked. And he'll leave his 20 cars behind. And he'll leave his house in Seattle behind. And oh, I pray, and we should pray, I pray that he's ready. You see, we came in, just think of how you came into the world. I remember being there when Josh and Janae were born. You know what? None of them came out wearing diamond rings. You know, Josh and Janae didn't come out wearing fancy clothes. Man, they just came out buck naked, covered with cheese. And the scripture says, man, you're going to go right into eternity even less clothed than that, because you're going to leave your body behind if you die, if you die before the Lord Jesus comes. I want us to think, it's very important to think hard, you brought nothing into the world. That's an objective fact. It's an objective fact that you can take nothing materially out. And that's just the honest-to-goodness truth. And what, the, what Paul is trying to rescue you from is, is spending a whole life in between coming in naked and going out naked, spending everything in between getting all kinds of clothing and all kinds of stuff that's just not going to last. That's what he's concerned about. He tells us the truth. He said, you brought nothing to the world, you take nothing out, but if you have food and clothing, be content with that. He says, if you have the necessities, be content. He's not saying that that might be all that your father will give you. Your father is a great, great God, a very bountiful provider. But you know, all you really need is food and clothing. The Greek word that's used there is just your daily sustenance, what you need to make it every day. The Lord taught you in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Every day is going to have enough trouble of its own. Just take it one day at a time. This would be a great verse to put up on your mirror. Just take it right here. Just put those words up on your mirror. But if we have food and clothing, and make it personal, if I have food and clothing, I will be content with that. And boy, the American church, and I need to hear that. We all need to hear that. Because everything around you is telling you, don't be content. You need this. You need this. And all the advertising is geared to get you not to be satisfied with what you got and what I have. And Paul is saying it's a lie to think, man, you've got to have that. You've got to have that. You've got to have that. It's just not the way to live. When you travel in other parts of the world, the rest of the world thinks we are nuts. They think we're crazy. And then they begin to act just like us. Because we're running helter-skelter and we, we, we don't have time for one another. And man, we believe that, man, you've got to have so much stuff. And Paul is saying, listen, contentment, you can have just your food and your clothing. You can be content. And then he goes on and says this, but people who want to get rich, it doesn't say that riches, but people that want to get rich, I'm just saying the bottom line this morning is you must not make it your desire to get rich. If your whole focus is to win the lottery, it's going to bring a lot of pain in your life. If your whole focus is to win the Microsoft lottery, it's going to destroy your life. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. They fall into many harmful and foolish desires that plunge men and women into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many a grief. I'm thinking of a dear friend right now. When I was a young kid, he was a powerful evangelist. He went as a missionary to the foreign field, became totally involved in the Lord's work. He, he has a marvelous voice. He sang in the, in the quartet my dad had. He, he's just an, an excellent, powerful communicator of the word of God. Founded a work on the mission field, but he got this dream of being able to make a lot of money. And he had this dream of being able to, learn, to make it fast. And he got a lot of other believers involved in it because we as believers can be so naive and, and, and this, this, this drive for money, this drive for finances can just grab a hold of us. And man, he had a great dream and it seemed like a great idea. And he got a lot of people to invest in it. My brother just told me on the phone yesterday afternoon, he's now a million dollars in debt. And he had to get out of the ministry to try to cover that debt. My brother talked about how he and a friend went and had prayer with my dear friend. My friend is broken today. He's hurt today. Can you imagine the load of a million dollars in debt? And now, out of the ministry that he loves, you know what did it? Money. The drive for money. Man, the special deal that just can't miss. I just got another call. You know, a lot of Christian organizations, and it seemed like a really good deal. And, and this guy called him up and said, man, if you invest with me, we'll float the money. And, and it just seemed perfectly, man. In fact, you were able to call and check with about eight or ten other Christian organizations. And, and it all worked fine. The, the money came back. But it turned out it was all just a pyramid scheme. And the guy was making $22,000 a week on, on some of those supposedly investments. And the whole thing fell in like a house of cards. When are we going to learn what Proverbs says? If it's too good to be true, it is false. It's too good to be true. It's not true. Proverbs says you, don't, you can't just earn it quick like that. You've got to do it by hard work and discipline and not making it your God. Making ethics your controlling influence of the word of God. 
And Paul is saying, I just, I plead with you because it's, I've talked to you in the past about, about immorality and I talked to you about, about violence. But this is just as serious, this love of money, this covetousness. And it can seize my own heart. And know how you need to pray for me. I mean, it's really easy when you're young and you're a student and you're poor and, you, and who cares? You know, you don't have anything anyway. But you have to make choices as you grow older. You make choices. I have to make choices about the way I use my speaking gift and what I do and, and what are the values. And, 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 and you have to make decisions every week about that. So do you. And oh, how we need to pray for one another that we're going to feel the, the ethics and the heart for God and that we're not going to be in love with money. Paul closes his word to Timothy by saying, Timothy, this is what I want you to really pursue. And he writes this, but you men of God, instead of loving money, which is going to produce all kinds of strife for you, instead of being a money lover who's going to be worshiping the wrong thing, he says, you man of God, what a great way to describe Timothy, a man of God, a godly man. I want you to flee from all this materialism. And I want you to do this. I want you to pursue righteousness. I want every one of you to think, has that been the drive of your life this week? Has it been the drive of my life? The word righteousness here is used in the sense of practical daily obedience to God's ethical commands. Practical daily experience. Paul uses righteousness in Romans of a gift of Christ's personality that you receive by faith. But in 1 Timothy 6, he's using it of the, of the Holy Spirit's work, which is a very practical, objective thing where he enables you every single day to conform to his ethics. And you have a responsibility to respond to that practical obedience the Holy Spirit wants to produce in your life. It needs to be the drive of your life. Have you been moving, driven? Lord, I want to I obey your commands in everyday life. Second of all, he says godliness. And the word godliness means that, you, that your heart, instead of being a money lover, you're a God lover. Has the passion of your life been to cultivate my intimacy with the living God? Then he talks about the big two in the Christian life. Faith, love, and hope are the big three. And Paul has two of those right here. Faith. Faith is what we're exercising today as we sing to our Lord. As we talk about the gospel. I want to ask you as a believer... Are you growing in your faith? Is the gospel more precious to you? Is it more the bottom line of your life than it was a few years ago? You see, faith isn't a static thing. Faith isn't just something you decided to do as a kid of five. Faith isn't just something that you decided in a moment of a Billy Graham crusade. That's where it can begin. But Paul envisions faith as not a static thing, but as a dynamic thing. And I want you to pray for me in that. Because one of my besetting weaknesses, and I've shared it with you, is that I'm a, I'm a New York, New Jersey, Eastern cynic. I have trouble with faith. My dad doesn't have trouble with faith. My dad believes anything the Lord tells him. Man, I argue and debate and want to have the answers. And sometimes it helps me to be a good teacher because I'm always trying to figure out and, and find the answer to the questions I'm asking. But I wrestle with faith. I could easily be a secularist. It's hard for me to believe in the unseen world. It's hard for me sometimes to wonder, man, is Jesus really the answer? I wrestle with that. And dark clouds could come over me in that regard. And faith is a gift. Faith is an openness of your heart to trust in God. 
And I'm, I'm not saying at all that I'm, that I'm wandering away from my trust in God. I'm just telling you I wrestle with that. And I'm honest about that. And it has to be a pursuit of my life. I can't be passive about it. I have to be active in allowing the Lord Jesus to produce trustability. That I will depend upon him. That I will believe what he tells me. And that's very important to do that. The next one, are you pursuing self-sacrifice? You see, if you're pursuing money, you're not going to be pursuing any of these other things the way you should. If money's your goddess, then you're not going to be loving God's standards. You're not going to be in love with faith. You're not going to be in love with self-sacrifice. It says that we need to make self-sacrifice the drive of our life. Endurance. The word patience. Are you forbearing with one another? And then finally, gentleness. He talks about fighting the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called when you were called, when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Paul's probably reminding Timothy about when he was baptized. And he's talking about the fact that when Timothy was baptized, he stood up and Timothy declared, I believe that Jesus died, that he stood before Pontius Pilate in space, time, and history. And he confessed that he was the Jewish Messiah. He said, when Pilate asked him, you know, about, about truthfulness, Jesus says, all those who rub the truth respond to me. And Jesus stood before Pontius Pilate and told the truth. And, and Timothy, as, a, as this young believer, Paul is reminding him, Timothy, you identified with that Jewish Messiah who was the epitome of truthfulness, who is God's Savior. He says, I don't want you to ever forget that. He says, Timothy, take hold of eternal life. You were born again at a point in time, but now you need to spend your lifetime seizing and grabbing hold of all that God grabbed a hold of you for. In other words, there's an action in that. There's a commitment of your will daily to living in line with the gospel. And he says this, to which you recall when you made that good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything. That's part of our confession today. And it summarizes what I've been trying to get across to you. Why shouldn't we be in love with money? Because money doesn't give you life. I'm going to say that again. Why shouldn't you worship money? Why shouldn't you be in love with money? Why shouldn't I? Because money cannot give you one split second of life. And don't worship any God that can't give you split seconds of life because that's all that you got. If you don't have life, money means nothing. If you don't have life, then all this material world means nothing. You're blind to it. You're deaf to it. It means nothing. So when you're, you're tempted to worship materialism and feel like this Bible stuff and this God stuff is so unrealistic. No, it isn't. It's not the Bible that's unrealistic that calls you to worship God. The Bible's not unrealistic. Materialism, secularism is unrealistic. There's only one being in all the universe that can breathe into you life. And Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, you pursue a relationship with the one who breathes into your nostrils life. And through his son, breathes into you eternal life that will last forever and ever. He says, in the sight of God who gives life to everything and of Christ the Messiah, the Savior Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you, Keep this commandment without spot or blame until the appearing. Now, here's our hope. The appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time, 
Notice anyone that speculates God is going to bring it about in his own time. If anyone says it's going to be this date, they're wrong. Because God's going to do it in his own time, but we need to be expecting it. And it says that God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who alone lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be the honor and might forever and ever and ever. You know what Paul is telling Timothy there, this king that dwelled in unapproachable light? You know what he's talking about when he talks about this Jesus who confessed before Pontius Pilate? He's saying that the drive of your life cannot be to become Mr. Microsoft, to become the Bill Gates, the next Bill Gates. Because all this will pass away. But what the Apostle Paul is challenging us to do is to keep the commandment. I want all of us to ask yourself, is the commandment precious to me? You say, Dave, what commandment is he talking about? He's talking about the commandment of the gospel of Christ. He just talked about a savior who before Pontius Pilate said he was the Messiah. That's a confession that you believe that from the beginning of the ages that God made a promise that he would send a savior into the world. And that savior has come. And what Paul was challenging Timothy to do is rather than to be in love with money, he was challenging Timothy to be in love with that savior. Rather being in love with money, he was asking Timothy to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And what he was calling Timothy to do, the only thing that will overcome materialism in our life is being wholly and completely devoted to the living God and his Son through the power of the Holy Spirit. And what Jesus said to us again and again is you can't, it can't be both and, it's either or. You're either going to be down on your face worshiping the living God or you're going to be in love with money. And so I would challenge you, those of you that already have have made this confession of faith, this is a great time for me and for you to evaluate where is the love of my life today? Is it focused on a love for the gospel? Is it focused on a love for Christ? Is it focused on a worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and and looking, looking to the one who is the giver of life? Or... Am I living for things? For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065, or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.